The following is brought to you by the Leave It in the Ring Podcast Network. All boxing, no filter. Greetings and welcome to the Boxing Esquire Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Boxing Esquire Podcast presented by The Ring and RingTV.com and distributed by the Leave It in the Ring Network. My guest on this episode is one of the best writers in the sport, Mr. Cliff Rold. Uh, he's a founding member of the independent media-run boxing ratings organization, the Transnational Boxing Ratings Board, which I respect uh, tremendously. Uh, he's also one of the managing editors of the leading, one of the leading boxing sites, uh, BoxingScene.com. Uh, we spoke about his uh, journey in the sport and how he ended up founding the uh, Transnational uh, boxing ratings board along with a couple of other writers Springs Toledo and Tim Starks and uh, we got into the art of rating fighters and the TBRB's process um, the state of the game and, and uh, a couple of other really uh, interesting subjects um, really hope you enjoy it uh, Cliff's a really interesting guy and has a, a lot to say about the sport it's a true pleasure to introduce my guest this week. Uh, very excited to have one of the founders of the independent media-run boxing ratings organization, the Transnational Boxing Ratings Board. Um, and he's also the managing editor of one of the leading boxing sites, BoxingScene.com, and, and one of the premier writers and thinkers in the sport. Uh, Mr. Cliff Rold, welcome to the Boxing Esquire podcast. Thank you for having me, Kurt. Ha- happy Memorial Day. Happy Memorial Day, my man. So, uh, so do you do you use the nickname Twenty Four Carat anymore, or no? <laughs> was... No, it's been a long time since that. <laughs> you, you, you'd have to you'd have to be able to remember that. Of course, I got started um, the first website I really worked for. I had had a few things published early on. Um, I, I had a fictional short story that that was run on the Cyber Boxing Zone. And I wrote a little bit for a, a, a start, a couple startup websites. But the first place I got hired was writing at ringtalk.com. And the editor there, Pedro Fernandez, gave me the nickname 24 Carat. Um, love that guy. He, he taught me a lot. And, and then from there, I got hired at Boxing Scene. And I've been there since 2007. So, Wow. 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 Well, let's take it back a little bit. So, so growing up, um, I, think you, I think you told me you were from, from Cali. Um, how did you, how did you, uh, develop an interest in boxing? I, I gotta be honest. It was just one of those things that, you know, everybody got together at my grandparents' house, you know, back when having HBO was a, a, a big deal, whoever had it in the family, everybody could go over and watch the fights. So the family would gr- gather over at my grandparents and I didn't watch a lot of, of it, you know, for the first six or seven years of my life, I wasn't sitting down to watch sports. And then you know, I remember one night my dad said, hey, you're going to watch this uh, this Mike Tyson kit. You're going to watch tonight. And I said, okay, I'll watch. And I spent two two rounds watching Mike Tyson fight Trevor Burbick, and that was it. I was in love with boxing from there forward. And I would spend a lot of Saturday nights and Friday nights, weeknights, back when there were more weeknight fights, watching boxing over my grandfather's house. And so that's what we did. I started buying magazines and, and buying up old history books and just got sort of obsessed with it at a fan level. There wasn't really a place to do it in town, so I never pursued it. But it was something I, as a fan, that I, I just cultivated this interest in, and it, it followed me my whole life. I, a couple pockets of time when I was a teenager where I stopped watching for a while, and I just always came back to it until it was just what it's become for me. It's just a, it's, uh, it's 
one of the things I enjoy most in life is to watch a good fight. Absolutely, absolutely. So you um you said you you started at Ring Talk initially. Was that like the the late nineties or so? No, I was right in there. So I would that would have been around two thousand three, two thousand and four. Okay. And so I so I was there for two or three years, and then and then I went over and, and started working for Rick in two thousand and seven. Okay, well, I mean, I, I know you had a few gigs in between there because I know, uh, yeah, like you said, the cyber boxing zone, which for me was like pretty much the first website I found when I first got on the net in the, in the 90s. Uh, I know you you wrote some really cool, uh, I think you were, you were, I don't know, kind of like, you know, com- like a comparative, uh, like generational comparative things for like the heavyweights and so on. Like, you know, who's like, some of that stuff. And, and, you know, I look back on it. I mean, it's been so long ago now you look back on it now and, and I realized, you know, how much more research I've done and how much more I've sort of learned about how to compare the different eras or at least how I think about it. Um, so some of it, I look back on and it's kind of, it, it's not as good as I would like it to be. Um, but it's, yeah, I, I wrote a few pieces for them and, you know, I just always, uh, I always got along, um, with Steve Gordon at their site and I still, every once in a while will email with Tracy Callis, who I, I know still does stuff for them. Um, but they were, they were great and they're still out there. It's a great resource for fans who want to dig into some historical articles and some great research that's been done. Um, it's, it's mostly a static website these days, um, more of an archive, but, a lot of the stuff that's in those archives is fantastic. I recommend it to anybody. Right, right. So, uh, so it was while you were at. Um, well, I, got, I think you wrote for. Did you write for Max Boxing for a little while too, or? Well, sort of. So, uh, what happened was for a brief period of time, Boxing Scene and Max Boxing were working on. They were they were doing something together, and so some of us that were at Boxing Scene were were our, some of our weekly work was added to the rotation at Max Boxing. Um, but I, I, it was sort of, I was working for max boxing by proxy through boxing scene. Um, and then when it, it, when they didn't keep doing what they were doing, uh, people like me, Jake Donovan, we all stayed with boxing scene. Um, after that all kind of washed out. Interesting. Okay. Okay. I was wondering how that worked. Okay. So while, while you're at boxing scene, um, I guess, uh, they decided, you know, the, the ring reached out to you to put you on, uh, the, the prestigious, uh, rings rating panel. At some point, what, at what yeah. point? At what point did you join there? Oh goodness, I don't really remember to be honest with you. <laughs> um, I think, I think it may have been around the time that I started writing for Rick. I, I can't really remember. Maybe two thousand seven, two thousand eight. I'd have to. It, it, I'd really have to go back and look. Um, but it was it was when Nigel Collins was still the editor there. Um, I believe he may have reached out personally on that, or Eric Raskin may have reached out to me. Um, but they asked me if I would, you know, chime in on this ratings panel they were putting together. I was like, sure, why not? And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd been, uh, I'd been pestering them for years about the, the lineage of the flyweight championship. I think, um, you know, like, Hey, you guys have to fix this. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> uh, you know, like, I'm, I'm like the, one of the two people on earth who probably cared, but regardless, <laughs> um, it, you know, stuff like that. And, and they asked me to fit in and I was like, sure. And then, you know, management changed there. I stayed on with the new crew for a while. And, um, yeah, so I, that was always a lot of fun. I mean, you just, you just weighed in and gave your opinion on who should move where. And some weeks you, you, you were more excited about it than others, you know, depending on what the, what the fight was or the results or the outcome, but you know, it's, it's, it's fun. It's fun stuff. 
Absolutely, absolutely. But at, at a certain point, uh, you and, and Springs Toledo and Tim Starks all uh, all kind of left. It was around 2012. You guys all left because um, there was a uh, uh, a change in the in the rules regarding crowning champs. Talk, talk about the, the the decision to to take off. All right, so it was pretty simple, right? So when it, it just was an issue of um, of they did they they put on paper. And I don't think it ever even came to fruition, right? But there had always been sort of an objection, like a purist objection, to the rule as it was anyways, which was if the title was vacant, you could have number one fight number three in the ratings, and that could fill a title under certain circumstances, right? In other words, it was, it was, uh, it was debatable. Well, then it, was, it became, I can't remember the exact wording, but it expanded it out where it looked like on paper you could potentially have like a number two fight and number five for the vacant title. And to my mind anyways, you know, if, if you're going that far, um, and, and frankly, the rules don't read that way anymore at ring, but for that period of time, um, at that point, it's like, well, if, why rate fighters? Like that was kind of how I was thinking about it. Like, you know, why have the ratings at all? If, if that's what you're going to do. Um, and it was just something that we didn't agree with. And for me, here's the thing, right? Like I'm not trying to, you know, make any money off of, you know, providing sort of press ratings. I know that some people don't care about them at all. Um, you know, they're looking at the reality of the sport. I mean, the fighters sometimes care, but often don't. Um, I mean, if I'm a fighter, I want to be rated in the top five by the WBC. I want to be their mandatory contender because that's how I can get an actual physical belt that I can make money with. Right. So I understand that part, but I think from an outsider perspective, you still want to have sort of some objective ratings that people can take a look at. And that history part of me that I like, you know, there should be a place where we can look, where we can try to capture as best as possible what the lines of the titles are, who are history's champions at any given particular time. Um, and I thought that the change in the ratings, this was just my personal take at the time, like that change in the ratings would, would really limit the ability to do that. Um, and so I wasn't crazy about that. And then me and Springs and Tim, we start talking about another idea and that's kind of the germ that, that turned into TBRB. Right, 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 right. I mean, it seems like the, the, the ring belt has gained a little more respect the, the, the last couple of years. I see that, you know, some, some champs kind of, you know, crave or, 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 or talk about the ring belt, although it's still, obviously it's not, you know, anywhere near the, the, the magnitude of the sanctioning bodies belts, but, um, I mean, do you think, you know, Golden Boy, you know, having, you know, owning the ring now, does that put like a taint over, over the, uh, over the, the belt or, or do you think that conflict of interest can be overcome or mitigated or how you feel about it? I, I think it did. I, I think at the time, and, and this was something that was discussed at the time, right? And, and I know that, that this podcast runs off of, of Ring's website. That's right. <laughs> right. I know it's not to disparage anybody. Um, you know, but I mean, obviously uh, it, it has the look of a conflict of interest that a promoter would own a publication that then is giving out titles, um, you know, obviously. And, and there was that even before, you know, the, the change in the rules that some of us objected to. So, you know, it looked that way, but my experience with it, um, sitting on the ring panel is there was, there wasn't a lot of, um, pressure put on anybody. There was no pressure put on anybody. There was no, nothing like that where you were like, Oh, you know, here's here's Golden Boy sort of dictating to us what we're going to do on this ratings panel. None of that ever happened. Um, and if you look at at Ring's ratings right now, and 
Um, and I don't think the two five rule even exists anymore. If you look in the magazine or online, it's back to, you know, one versus three is sort of as extreme as they're going to go to fill a vacant title. So they've kind of gone back, but because I looked this up the other day, I was just curious how it read now. And, you know, you look at it and, and, um, I apologize. I just lost my train of thought. Sorry, Kurt. <laughs> well, you were looking at the ring rules. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I was trying to, I was getting somewhere else. I, I, I know you can remix it. So sorry about that. We'll move on. We'll move on. Yeah. We're talking about conflicts of interest, but, uh, but no, that's cool. Oh, uh, yeah. So, so anyways, yeah. So you go, if you look at rings, rate. Sorry, here's where I was going. Um, cut and restart here. Like <laughs> the, if you look at the, if you look at the way rings ratings read right now, and you compare them to the ratings at ESPN or the ratings at Boxing Monthly or even the ratings at TBRB, you're not going to see this huge disparity in the rating. Um, I mean, there's going to be differences sometimes. I mean, sometimes where we are at, at, as in terms of who we think the number one fighter is versus Ring or ESPN or any of the other press outlets that provide sort of non-sanctioning body, more independent ratings. Um, I mean, they're still, they're all kind of within a certain standard deviation of each other. So, you know, I mean, do I see reflected in ranks ratings? Like here's what, here's the golden boy influence. No. Um, do I think Doug Fisher or any of the people who sit on their panel, I know some of them, Adam Abramowitz, I think is on their panel right now. Like are those people chiming in to try to, you know, influence that way? No, I don't see it that way. But the appearance of a conflict of interest and the actual existence of one are not always the same thing. You know what I mean? Absolutely. 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 So in November 2012, uh, you know, you and, and, and Tim and Springs, you know, we were founding members of the Transnational Boxing Ratings Board. Uh, talk about the decision to form the board and what goals you had in mind. I mean, I think everybody's goals are different. Mine, I've always been kind of straightforward about, like, I wanted as best as possible to get a crew of people together so that we could take a look at the moments when, you know, when, when there isn't a, a clear world champion and you can sort of identify the new lineage that's emerging as best as possible so that fans can look at, at, at any given time and, and look at a place where, and, and this is big for all of us. We, you know, at the end of the day, if you're going to rank fighters one through 10, then one and two should mean something, right? So, we're a one-two organization when the titles are, are vacant, and we don't always come out with the same results everyone else does. So it doesn't always mean it's universal, um, or that we reflect any sort of you know re universal like restart of a lineage or anything. But as best as possible, if there's a place where you can protect that lineage and you can just be sort of a, a standard that, that people can look to over a period of time, that was good enough for me. Um, I, I don't care to make any money off of it. Um, not interested in sort of, you know, being a big promoter of it. I just wanted it to be sort of a, a rock thing that people could look at and say, hey, you know, week after week, they, they, they provide you their, uh, their input into who they think the 10 best in, in each of boxing 17 weight divisions are, and they, they, they give an honest take on it, and that's that. Right, right. Well, you, you know, you've, you've, the membership has grown uh, over the years, it seems, and, and it's definitely gotten more ge geographically diverse. Um, do you think it's, it's you know, as representative as, say, you know, the, the sanctioning bodies now where they have, you know, reps from, from, from major countries and, you know, major boxing countries and so on? Do you think uh, TBRB has achieved that or is that something you wanted to achieve or how's that? I think we have. We've tried very hard to make sure that we have sort of a, a geographically diverse pool. 
Um, I mean, it's hard, right? Like, like watch even in this sort of more interconnected era where you can watch more fights than ever on, you know, YouTube and where there's all these streaming services now as we head into the next decade. Still, it's good to have people on the ground in places who are covering fights worldwide. Are we as representative as some of the sanctioning bodies? I don't know. I don't know enough about how they necessarily allocate for their ratings. Um, but I think, you know, in a best case scenario, you you know, if if you can get somebody to chime in on the ratings who is, you know, in in Asia, um, you know, writing about Asian fighters, whether it's in Thailand or Japan, anything that you can get like that, you should aim for it. You know, it, it just widens the pool of knowledge that's available. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, since, since you're one of the writers uh, whose who scholarship on lineal champs and ratings I really respect, I, I wanted to talk to you about the, the art of rating fighters in 17 weight divisions. I mean, I had uh, Steve Weisfeld on, on the podcast and I talked to him about, uh, about judging. So I wanted to talk to you about rating fighters. So let's say you, you, you're, you're starting ratings from scratch. So, so how do you first go about like gathering fighters who are eligible to be rated in a top 10 of a particular division? I mean, do you just look at box rec? Do you look at the sanctioning ratings, you know, the ratings, the sanctioning bodies, you know, their ratings, uh, other publications like Ring, ESPN, Boxing Monthly? I mean, how, how do you kind of gather your pool of, of fighters in order to, to rate them? I think that, that it was a lot of that at the very beginning. I mean, you kind of, we pulled together, you know, what we... Um, because once we, once you had your first sort of draft of ratings, then it was sort of all, it sort of took care of itself from there once you had uh, a procedure set in place. So, but in this particular case, I mean, you, you pulled from the fighters that you knew of, like in a lot of weight divisions starting at the very top, like who are the top two or three guys in each division? I mean, it was easy enough to compile that. Um, and then you sort of built work backwards, you know, look at the records, look who's been beating who lately. Um, you know, uh, I, I'd have to go back to 2012 to sort of look at the notes to see everything that we did to compile the first list. Um, but once we whittled it down to a draft, um, and then we had put together the inaugural board for TBRB, then the process was really about getting what the consensus of the board was going to be for the first ratings and then going from there. Gotcha. Gotcha. So just you personally, I mean, once you have the pool of fighters, like what, what criteria do you have that, that, that goes into rating fighters, you know, one above the other? I mean, is it, is it solely resume or do you also go off the eye test and, and how they are winning fights? You know, does potential figure into the ratings, you know, common opponents? I mean, what all do you look at when, when, when you compare them? In a perfect world, that you wouldn't need the eye test, right? Like everybody would be fighting everybody so frequently that right. you'd have a pretty good pool size to look at. It's not really like that. I mean, once you get past a certain level in the sport, even into the top ten, so not, you know, it used to be like in the last forty years we've seen champions slow down their schedule, but everybody else might fight a little bit more often than that. It's not like that anymore. So you know, even even. Even regular fighters, like before they get to a title, they, they sort of slow down to maybe three to four fights a year, two to three sometimes, right as they're hitting the title area. So really, I mean, once you're talking about rating fighters, you really want to be looking at results as much as possible. And then activity level also matters. So if you haven't fought in over a year, you know, does that matter? Um, do you have a fight signed? Or are you just sitting out waiting for a big payday? Um, but really, who have you beaten? And then, like, who have you beaten in your last five or so fights, right? Because that can, that can cover two and a half years of a fighter's career. 
Right. Um, and it's easy when you're getting to guys like Floyd Mayweather, right? Like Floyd didn't lose ever. So it was always easy to kind of have him around the number one spot. Right. right. Um, but sometimes you, sometimes you have to make other calls. But I mean, think about welterweight right now. So how hard is it really to rate welterweight? Um, you have two guys that everybody sort of thinks are the best guys in the division. So you got Errol Spence and you got Terrence Crawford. That's sort of the fight everybody would like to see. And, and when I say everybody, it's like, it, it, that's a, that's a that's a soft everybody. I mean, there's plenty of other fights people would like to see, but that's a that's the big one for in a lot of people's head right now. How do you figure out who to rate there, right? Well, you kind of you could take a look at at top ten welterweights. Who beat more of them? So you know, Kel Brook has beaten uh, sort of he's beaten a couple guys who were rated. Terrence Crawford really hasn't in the division yet. He beat Jeff Horn, who was rated after the Pacquiao fight, but that was kind of a soft top ten spot for Jeff Horn. A lot of people didn't think he won that fight. Errol Spence beat a guy in Kell Brook who had been rated, you know, in the upper echelon of the top ten, number one in some places for a couple of years. I mean, if you're if you're picking between the two of them, you go with the guy who sort of got the better wins at welterweight right now. But then what do you do if you got to weigh Keith Thurman against those two guys? Because Keith Thurman has wins against Sean Porter and Danny Garcia. So he's got, you know, he's got maybe more quality wins in the division than a Crawford or a Spence. So where would you rate him? Especially considered he didn't fight for like a year and a half. So does that cost him his spot? Seems like most of the ratings that are out there, whether it's ours or ranks or anybody, they all seem to sort of have Keith Thurman slipping behind those guys. Um, but ultimately, it doesn't matter because you know those are probably your top three. That All three of those guys are in your top five at least. And ultimately, you would hope most of them will fight. At least on the PBC side, I think we'll see most of the fights that are available to that crew of guys. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, what what does Crawford do and, you know, how does he keep pace? But, you know, uh, obviously the whole, um, you know, at least the hardcores in the sport, most boxing fans in general, if you're a boxing fan, you want to see Spence Crawford. <laughs> We're hoping that what eventually does oh, happen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but oh, you're right. Like, yeah, like. That I remember, I think it was, oh, go ahead. No, I was just—I was just gonna say, yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, weighing those three, it's—it's it's a really interesting case, you know, because uh, you know, what do you weigh there? Resume, recent activity, you know, maybe uh, you know, potential ability, you know, what, you know, how how do you uh, rate those guys because they haven't fought each other? Yeah, and I mean, as far as eye test goes, in a divisional race, you really shouldn't need too much eye test, right? Like, you should have enough resume that you can do that. Um, do I think people eyeball sometimes? Yeah. Do I think they always have even in, you know, quote unquote, independent ratings? Of course they have, right? Like sometimes you're, you're trying to make a decision based on a, a, a smaller pool of evidence and you expect that evidence to grow. And, and that, that happens. Um, and sometimes that's tough here. Uh, I mean, again, it, with lower activity fighters in a lower activity era, it can be hard to get the resume going. But I think you should save your eye test more for, for more stuff like pound for pound ratings. Um, if you're going to employ it at all. But I think resume should always be the first thing that you're looking at in, in rating a fighter in a division. Right. Now, you know, I I, I used to uh, go into the, uh, I think I, at boxing scene, you used to have like, uh, when you did the divisional ratings there, you had like some uh, comment section. I used to go in every once in a while and nitpick with you. But I noticed that um, you uh, you had, uh, most most times you would have the title holders of each major sanctioning belt in your top 10. I mean, do you give more credence to, to the belt holders in the ratings if all else is equal in resume or, or if it's close? I, it's hard, right? Like, it, it, there's an organic, there's sort of an organic element to it. So, 
when guys win belts, typically they win belts against somebody who is probably in or around the top 10 of the division anyway. So the belt, com- the belt doesn't necessarily generate the rating. The belt is, is, is lined up with a fight that would get you rated anyways. That's what I find to be the case most of the time. And um, I don't do my own ratings anymore like I used to a boxing team. But what I do do is I try to keep track of, and I put this out, you know, four or five times a year now, a list of all the champions in the sport. So ring, TBRB, all of the sanctioning body champions, how many defenses each of those champions have, um, and then what are the records that, that we can take a look at for each of the sanctioning body titles. So who has the most IBF, consecutive IBF heavyweight title defenses? That's Vladimir Klitschko, by the way. And then, <laughs> you know, the history, and then history's overall record. So that way you have a place where you can sort of separate. Um, I, I wrote an article before one of the Golovkin-Alvarez fights. And basically I was talking about who is the, the record holder for consecutive title defenses in middleweight. Because there's really, that you could come up with more than one answer for that. Right. Um, fighters, you know, people who have been watching in the last 20 years might just answer Bernard Hopkins on reflex. But Bernard was the IBF champion for 20 defenses, but he wasn't undisputed until he was around his 14th title defense. Whereas Carlos Monzon won the undisputed title and, and defended it straight through 14 times. So those are two different records, really, when you're talking about it. So so finding a way to, to let people know that there's a difference between some of these records, and, not, and I'm not saying one is, is better than the other or anything like that. People can make their mind up about that themselves. But if you can just prevent, present them the numbers, then they can make an informed decision. Right. Or right. an informed opinion. Right. So with, I mean... I mean, it's very difficult, and and just with with fights, you know, seventeen weight divisions, fights going on all over the world. I mean, how often do you check like box rec or, or update your ratings, like daily, weekly? I mean, how often does that happen? I mean, we do TBRB updates every week, so you know, we all and but but we've got a formal structure for it now, so everybody recognizes, right? Any you you don't want to have a single point of failure, and so what we do is we have. Two guys that monitor the results from the weekend for rated fighters. So, and any other notable results that, that they want to include in the mix. And so, one guy takes like from welterweight up, and the other guy takes from welterweight down, and they they make sure everybody has the results before we start talking about okay, here's here's what we'd like to see you know moving in the ratings this week. So, and and typically I might start the conversation and say okay, I suggest. Uh, we move fighter X to here and, you know, whatever it is. And then I'll send that email around and it, it goes to the crew and um, of guys that, that, that take a, the first look, first pass each week. And then, you know, we go to the board, um, the full board, and, and we say, here's what we think, and then we debate it out. Okay, yeah, I was, I was going to ask you about that. You know, what's, what's the process of voting and, and tabulating the, the monthly ratings? I mean, is it a point system? I mean, you, you, do you take a day or two to debate? I mean, how does that work? No, so basically, it's just like that. So we'll start a conversation. Hey, you know, like um, this last weekend, Devin Haney had a real impressive showing. Should Devin Haney, who we had rated 10th at Lightweight, you know, should we move him up a slot or two? That's a debate that's going on right now. So... You know, it, we might make a suggestion about where he should go in the ratings. And then, you know, we post to an internal message uh, board and everybody kind of can go in there and talk about it. And, you know, basically it's just a debate. It's not 
you know, you, you tally the votes at the end for everybody that weighed in. Um, and you're not required to weigh in. I mean, sometimes guys just might agree with the suggestions and not have something to say that week. Um, but, you know, people debate about it. And whatever the outcome is, is democratic. You know, if everybody's like, no, hell no, we don't move that fighter up, <laughs> then that wins. And, you know, it's, it's just a way to start the conversation each week, keep it orderly. And uh, usually we take about three days and then we post the, the week's new ratings. I got you. I got you. It's interesting, too, when you have, uh, I mean, I remember being on a ratings poll in the early 2000s, and the one thing that was really annoying was that you'd have certain fighters who, you know, different voters would rate him in, in different divisions. And so it would be like a, he'd get like a watered down rating in two divisions as opposed to like a strong one in one. I mean, what happens when you have a fighter like Mikey Garcia, who's like constantly jumping around divisions? I mean, do you, do you have a mechanism where you pin him down to one division or... Do you let the membership decide where they want to, to, to put him in? I mean, can he be rated in more than no one problem. division? We have no problem rating a guy in more than one division. I mean, it may be a case where they're just jumping around a lot. Um, with Mikey, he was he's he's still rated, I believe, at lightweight for us. I'd have to go, I'd have to check and pull it up. Um, but I mean, we we if if let's say you've got a champion, right? So Mikey Garcia, when he beat. Um, when uh, when he fought at, at, at Sergey Lipinets, so that was a one-two fight for TBRB. So the winner was our junior welterweight champion. So um, Mikey Garcia is still listed as the junior welterweight champion at TBRB. So you know, but it doesn't look like, at least to my eyes, that he's going to fight at junior welterweight soon again, if at all. So you know, what you do in that case is you try to reach out to their camp and ask. You know, are you intending to fight at junior welterweight again? We're not going to strip guys um, of of our recognition outside of the ring unless you know. I mean, there's there's circumstances where you could remove somebody's championship designation, but you know you want to go through the process and we have that all in the charter. So, but I mean that's what we do. You just reach out. You know, are you still fighting in this division? But if you're the best lightweight in the world and the best junior welterweight in the world, and you're fighting in both divisions on a regular basis, then why not be rated in both divisions? Right. Right. Well, that, that, that's interesting. And I guess you kind of touched on it a little bit before, but, you know, let's, you know, you, you said that, you know, the number one and two fought and, and I would assume that junior welterweight didn't have a lineal champion at the time. So if the TBRB crowns a champion, you know, do you consider that like Garcia, uh, a lineal champion now uh, of junior welterweight? So me personally, this is one of those funny things. Um, you know, and, and again, it gets into sort of that whole weird, like, what is what is lineage and when do you when do you know you've seen it and what I look for uh, when I'm going to record it and it, it I'm far from the authority on this you know I'm just one person weighing in on you know when I think you should maybe record someone as, as a new historical champion um, but I think when there's a legit consensus that builds around one particular guy um, in the absence of an existing lineage then you would go in that direction like right now um, you know it's easy at cruiserweight right like. He right. has all all against Usyk had all the belts. Um, he beat the he he beat the number two guy. So you know, in that case, of course, I recognize him as lineal. But so would anyone else, right? Like he's not going to stay in the division, but he's an easy example. In a case like Mikey and Lippin, yet um, we might not come out to the same result that somebody else might. Um, an example would be you know Ring recognized the winner of Jorge Linares and Anthony Krola as the lightweight champion. We didn't. Okay, 
Um, but I, I, you know, I, I don't think, I mean, if somebody wanted to view that as the lineal crown, they could, uh, from the ringside. But I think in, in those kind of cases where it's not a 100% consensus, you might want to wait a little bit longer, but TBRB is still giving a, our, our point of view on a good jumping off point on where we thought we saw a good one versus two matchup. Right, right, right. So, um, you know, for, you know, just for like, you know, lineal purposes, I mean, it's, I mean, yeah, I mean, I remember there was a big debate when it was Mikulczewski and, and Jones, where Jones had three of the four belts, but Mikulczewski had kind of, you know, won it. But even Mikulczewski, I mean, I don't think there was ever like a, a four belt champion or, I mean, he won because Virgil Hill had had unified, right, with uh, Henry Mask. And then he beat- that was a pretty, that was a pretty, that was an easy one though, right? So go back and if you look at the sequence of events, that, that happened there. That's a pretty easy one to come out with the lineage. So you didn't have a clear lineage at the time. But when Virgil Hill fought Henry Mass, um, you could pretty much, you could say that was the consensus one and two fighters in the division. Okay. And, and Roy wasn't really a factor at light heavyweight yet. He was still fighting at super middleweight. Um, I can't remember. He may have just moved up to fight Mike McCallum, but he wasn't a real factor in the division yet. The other champion in the division at the time was Fabrice Chioto. She also had beaten Mike McCallum for his belt. And before he won that belt, uh, the WBA belt, Chioto had lost in a title defense. A success, or uh, Chioto, excuse me, Chioto, I think, had the WBC belt. Virgil Hill had the WBA because it was his second reign where he made 10 title defenses in each of his two reigns. So in his second reign, he had successfully defended against Chioto before Chioto wins the other sanctioning body belt. And then Henry Mask was just racking up defenses on the other side. So by the time Hill and Matt square off, by process of elimination in the division, the top two light heavyweights in the world were Hill and Mask. Who beat Virgil Hill? Darius Mikulczewski. Right. So that's your lineage. Um, and then and, and then it doesn't matter anymore. Like, do I think Roy Jones Jr. was better than Darius Mikulczewski? Oh hell yeah. I mean, and and I I think it. You know, I mean, in terms of overall career, in terms of light heavyweight and who beat better fighters, um, who had a, a greater depth of challenges on their resume, I think that would go to Roy's advantage. That's, that's just my opinion. But in terms of lineage, it's not really – I never understood why it was much of a debate. I mean, Mitchell beat Hill, and Hill earned that recognition in the ring. Right, right, right. Yeah, I guess, you know, it became a debate because those two just never fought. And, you know, Roy had three belts. <laughs> and then it just well, seemed and, like... And Roy, was, and Roy was perceptually... so Perceptually, I'm not... We never saw him in the ring, so you'll never know for sure. But Roy was perceptually so much better than Terry Nichols. Right, right, yeah, exactly. It, for a lot of people, it's like it, it, the, the real answer to the question for them was who gives a damn about the lineage? Like, Roy Jones is the best light heavyweight in the world, and that's what mattered to them. And... You know, I, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that line of thinking. Um, but, I mean, if you're going to keep track of lines and stuff and lineages and, and you want to see people do it in the ring first, um, then you would still want to pay attention to something like Hill to Mikulzewski. Right, right. No doubt, no doubt. So I guess, you know, just, just uh, thinking about the, the TBRB and, and, and what influence it's had, I mean, have you been satisfied with the traction and influence that, that TBRB has gotten in the boxing world? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much we have. I mean, it's, it's hard to gauge that sort of thing. I mean, every every once in a while, you'll you'll hear somebody give us a good shout out. Um, there's lots of people that that you'll read in, in sort of some of the press areas that will you know take a look at where we have fighters ranked. That's good enough for me. 
Um, I, I don't, I don't need, I, I, I never felt like personally that it was, per, that it was super important that everybody glom onto us right away. I think what is important is after seven years, we're still there. Um, we're still doing this every week. You've still got a bunch of people who love boxing who get together, um, you know, get, get, get that meeting of the mind going to discuss like where fighter X and Y should go. And we provide that to the public. Um, and we do, and I think we do a good job with it and we're consistent and, you know, if, if people can use that to help them figure out what they think or, or give them a good idea of who the best fighters in each division are, then I think we've done more than enough. Yeah, listen, I, I think there's tremendous value to having an independent uh, poll, especially with, you know, the, the sanctioning bodies not exactly, you know, uh, doing the job that they're meant to do, which is <laughs> rate fighters and, and rate the best in the world. So the best fight the best. Um and I think, you know, you guys have definitely one of the best set of independent ratings and, and just processes going. Um, have any of the sanctioning bodies reached out to you to adopt your ratings? I mean, I remember back in back in the early 2000s when the WBA um, had some controversy with their ratings. I remember they were talking to like Charles J about having some sort of uh, independent uh, ratings board come and, and do their ratings. But I don't know, they, they could never work something like that out. I mean, would you guys even be amenable to that? No, it hasn't been anything that has been brought up to me. I, again, I'm not looking, I, I, I don't want to get into a, a business relationship with anybody over the ratings or anything personally. Um, so that, that hasn't been anything that's really come up for us. No, I gotcha. Yeah. I, I wrote an article last year on, on my concept of, of what a, what a boxing league, you know, could, you know, could be and how it could take shape. And my, my idea was to have the sport adopt, you know, like the, the world boxing super series type tourneys in each division, you know, you do tourneys, you know, five or six in five or six divisions a year and, and rotate them. Uh, and I proposed that the league use the, uh, the TBRB or some hybrid of like TBRB and box rec or maybe boxing monthly to come up with uh, the final ratings to determine seedings for the tourneys. So like if the world boxing super series, which I think is kind of like the model for the sport right now, if they reached out to you guys to use your ratings to determine seedings in their tourneys, would you guys be like amenable to that? Sure. I mean, there's nothing stopping them from doing it right now. Right. I agree. I, mean, <laughs> I wish they they're would. Out they're, out they're in public. Right, we're not looking for a branding opportunity. If you want to take our ratings and say these are the these are how, where we're seating people based on where they are in the TBRB ratings, you go right ahead. We'd love that, you know. Right. I mean, I think it I think it, that would be great. it would give them a lot. You know, not that they don't. Have, I mean, they have tremendous credibility because they're doing something in the sport that's just not happening otherwise. But uh, I think you know, if, if you know, a few of the choices they've made for entrance in the tournament, I was just kind of like. That guy's not even in the top twenty-five, man. <laughs> you know, like. Well, yeah. but here's the thing, right? Here, here's the thing, and, and I'm a big. I love the World Boxing Super Series. I have <laughs> been a, a big fan of what they've done. Um, I mean, the 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 least sort of aggressive of the tournaments, I guess, on paper was the super middleweight one. Um, aggressive is just the the word I'm using there in terms of the depth that they were able to give the tournament. Um, and again, it's, it's ability, right? Like you have to have the ability to get all of, all of these fighters that you want. But I mean, if you look at the current cruiserweight tournament, the, so the, the part two cruiserweight tournament, I think going in five of the, the eight competitors were rated in the top 10 by TBRB, um, and, and, and ring. Um, if you look at the Bantamweight tournament before Tete fell out, 
going into the tournament, you had three of the top four fighters in the division, not including Luis Neri, who had some other issues going on outside the ring for a while, and now he's signed somewhere else. But you had a big chunk of the Bantamweight top ten. You're ultimately going to have probably the consensus one-two fighters in the division when Pagrai fights Josh Taylor. The first cruiserweight tournament was stacked top to bottom with top ten guys. Um, I mean, I'll take it if, you know, a couple of the guys in the quarterfinals maybe shouldn't be there because you have to fill out the brackets. Um, and you can't, there's just, boxing is a little too convoluted globally to get the top eight fighters in anybody's ratings in one place at one time. But if you can get five and get into a semifinal where all, you know, the cruiserweight, the first cruiserweight tournament had the entire championship roster at cruiserweight. I mean, I'll, I'll live with a bad quarterfinal round if we get all four belts unified at the end. Right, right, absolutely. I just wish, as a baseline, they'd use like the 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 TBRB just to you know to, to at the very least reach out to guys in the top ten there, so you know they can you know see if they can get as many as they can. Because um, otherwise, you know, it, it, if it gets a little too arbitrary, then it's no no better than the sanctioning bodies. But but even even so, yeah, there's. I mean, I'm a massive, massive, massive fan of the World Boxing Super Series. I hope they survive uh, beyond this year. So <laughs> I do too. I think it's great. And I mean, look, you you look at Van Wait right now. They got all that talent there. Um, I mean, the the possibilities in the right divisions. I mean, you're not going to probably be able to pull off a World Boxing Super Series in middleweight or welterweight. Or, or heavyweight, right? Those are glamour divisions, and they, they process differently. Um, and often you don't need a World Boxing Super Series here. I mean, there aren't very many generations where welterweight doesn't shake out and provide the matchups that you're looking for. I mean, Pacquiao and Mayweather, you know, I, I think it, the long wait for that got in a lot of people's heads in terms of viewers and fans and pundits. But for the most part, that's not how it works, right? Like, the generational fights tend to happen at middleweight and welterweight. The divisions where... You haven't seen that enough. Our divisions like bantamweight, where you know we went a generation, I think almost without a unification fight at bantamweight. Um, flyweight didn't have a unification fight for almost forty years until Brian Valoria fought Tyson Marquez back in 2012. Mm. Things like the World Boxing Super Series give an opportunity for those type of divisions to to have some to have some real action. Um, to give some clarity to the generation and, and to give you an idea of, of who the best fighters in those times are. Because think about how many fights we didn't get to see at Bantamweight over the years. I mean, we never saw, you know, we never saw Timmy Austin or 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 Rafael Marquez fight Birapol Sahabram or Hozumi Hasegawa or any of those kind of fights. When I mean, we got a small window of that when Montiel and Donaire and some of those guys fought each other. But that was like the first time in, what, 20, 30 years where you'd seen a, a real clarity in that division. And World Boxing Super Series allows for that to happen in some in some divisions that don't always get it. So that's great. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I was actually bugging uh, Russell Peltz on when I had him on about not making uh, Jeff Chandler and Lupe Pintor because that would have been like an amazing fight. Back oh my in the 80s. god, that would have been a good fight. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Jeff, and, and and again, I mean, think about it. Like Jeff Chandler had a great career, but it's a crying shame that Jeff Chandler never got a chance to unify the division. You know, it's just, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, in terms of, especially back in his days, he only had two guys, right? You right. didn't have the IBA round yet. Um, it would have just been cool. Um, and, and any unification you can see in divisions where you don't see a lot of it, I'm all for. So, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Even the cruiserweights, you know, just having, I mean, that hadn't really been done. I mean, there had been a couple like, you know, like one or two belts would be, or, you know, obviously two belts would be unified, but yeah, there hadn't been like an undisputed since, uh, since Holyfield. So that was great. 
No, right. well, not quite. You, 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 actually, we had a pretty good pocket in the previous decade. Remember, we had O'Neill Bell and Mormet was a three belt fight, and then one of the belts got stripped, I think, off of Mormet after the rematch, and then he fought Hay, and Hay had two, and then Hay added the WBO. So you did have that that quick cluster of it, but right, it was over right. quick. Right, right. Oh, I totally forgot about that. That's right. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. So hey, let's talk about... Yeah, uh, Cruiserweight's Cruiserway been lucky in that regard. So, you know, it's just it, it's it's lined up a few more times than some of the other divisions that you might expect. So Right, right. Yeah, it's funny because uh, there were some complaints that, you know, why would, why would they do the Cruiserweights back-to-back, um, the World Boxing Super Series? But in fact, I mean, you've got both Gassiev and Usyk moving up, so I'm not going to be mad, you know, at, at the winner in of the tournament, I would definitely call him the number one cruiserweight in the world. You know, you got that. Yeah, I, I think I think it lined up perfect for that. And, and the thing is, with cruiserweight, um, this the last, especially in the 21st century, it's been one of the most consistent action classes in boxing. So if you're looking to put on good action fights um, that are competitive, where you don't always know the outcome, cruiserweight is a pretty good location for that. And it's chock full of, of lots of guys who are super experienced at the amateur level. Um, I mean, there's just a lot of talent there and it's just talent that, that doesn't necessarily have that sort of size and extra bit of athleticism to compete with some of these monsters that are in the heavyweight division right now. I mean, the heavyweight division, it got big in the nineties and it has stayed big for quite a while. <laughs> That's true. It's true. Yeah. I mean, uh, let's hope that they don't create any more divisions, but yeah, it is, it is definitely a big leap from cruiserweight to, to heavyweight. These oh days. God, no, no. Huh? I mean, if you, Cruiserweight is fine right where it is. I mean, that, that's that's an incredible jump. I mean, it used to be that going light heavyweight to heavyweight was the jump, right? And, but that was going 175 pounds up to maybe, you know, maxing out at, at outside of a, a, a like a Willard or a Carnera who was an aberration in their time. You were going up to fight Lewis, who was 200 pounds, or a Liston that was 210, 215. Um, 175 to Anthony Joshua, that's a, I mean, that's, that's that's a big that's a big jump. That's, a, <laughs> I mean, that's, almost, that's almost that's almost like that's almost like taking Noya in a way and having him go up and fight a light heavyweight. Right. Absolutely. I mean, that's how big that's how big the jump in size and weight is. And I know that there's there's some differences that that you'll talk to trainers and they'll talk about coordination and footwork and fluidity and athletic fluidity past a certain size, but still like. When you're going from light heavyweight to heavyweight now, you're talking about a jump of almost 75 pounds versus, you know, just going to cruiserweight is, is sort of the jump it used to be. You're going from 75 to 200. Those cruiserweights then go unlimited. I think having the unlimited class be at 200 pounds and stay there is fine with me. I mean, you still have guys like Hay, like um, Deontay Wilder has won fights at 210, 212. I mean... He, I think the weight line is where it should be, and they shouldn't mess with heavyweight. Heavyweight is, uh, I don't think we need to mess with it any more than it already has been. Absolutely. Absolutely. So listen, let's talk about the state of the game right now. I mean, it's, you know, it's late May 2019. I mean, we've got more money in the sport and, and more fights broadcast in the States and around the world and, you know, any time in the sports history. Um, this year in particular, though, I've been a little disappointed that that we're we're getting kind of a lot of, you know, I mean, there's been some good fights, but there's also been just a lot of kind of meaningless in-house fights between, you know, the, the, the folks that are on the on the networks. I mean, how would you rate 2019 so far in, in terms of delivering the goods to the fans? Off to a slow start. It's getting better, <laughs> but it got off to a slow start. 
I mean, it, but how could it not? Last year, I mean, think about what we got in the last quarter, in the last third. Let's say the last third of 2018. So DAZN lost, and so you got a bunch of those World Boxing Super Series fights. You got Usyk and Tony Bellu, which felt like a big event. You got Joshua and Pebeck, and you got Canelo's debut. Even though it was against a guy, you know, who, who he was not going to lose to, it was still an event because it's Canelo with the guard, right? So you had all of that going on. You had Fury and Wilder on Showtime, which was really just compelling stuff um, and, and well-built. And they had a pretty strong last third of the year. ESPN debuts, they get into the game. All of that was like the top-ranked deal happened last year. You had the end of HBO Boxing. You had Canelo and, and Golovkin, too. So there was all of that in the last four months of 2018. That's a hard act to follow in the next four months after that. Right. So we've had some really good fights. Um, Jarrett Hurd and Julian Williams was just a gem. What a great show they put on. Um, last weekend, you got the Jamel Herring fight. Great story. Um, you've had some good action fights in, in multiple divisions. Um, but May, I think April, May, we've really seen sort of the year get better. So if you're a hardcore fan, you had Gaio Estrada in the rematch with Teresa Ketsurungusai. You've had the World Boxing Super Series stuff. If you're, you know, just a, a, a general fan of boxing, you had Canelo and Jacobs, which I thought, you know, a lot of people didn't like that fight. I thought it was pretty good. So I was fine with that. Um, you had Deontay Wilder with another, you know, highlight reel knockout. Um, I mean, he just, it, he, punchers like him don't come along every day. So you just enjoy it when he's in the ring. Um, I think things have gotten better. We've had a couple busy weeks. Um, you know, Joshua's coming to the Garden in a couple weeks. Right. So it's getting better, but I mean, it's hard. You know, I mean, boxing is 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 always struggled in this era of. I don't mean this era. It's really going on two generations now. When you think about it, Kurt. So you you, you have this sort of split programming stuff that goes on, and then it's hard to keep the consistency. I mean, you know, people talk about how. Top Rank and Don King used to do business back in the 80s when the fights were really big. Sure, they did some really big fights, but how often did they really do business, and how often was it better business to just leave you know, each side with the champions that they had fighting the guys that, they, that were most available? And you would have like a, a outfit like main events that would kind of float back and forth between um, because they had a stable that, that could do business with lots of people. So, you know, they, they would take Pernell Whitaker over to fight Julio Cesar Chavez or find ways to get Evander in the ring with Mike Tyson, and, and that would bring the networks together. Or I mean, they tried to do Holyfield and Tyson in 91, um, and then, you know, that wound up happening all in-house for Don later on. But they were they were trying. Um, but, I mean, it's, it's just gotten harder. And now you've got three distinct networks um, and, and some very distinct, you know, sort of teams of people and, and fights. And it's, you know, consistency is going to be tough. Right, right. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, obviously I, I wish that uh, that these guys would just kind of wise up like the, uh, like the you know, owners of the barnstorming football teams did in the 20s and decide, hey, why don't we all just work together, form a schedule in the league and, you know, and consolidate instead of competing with each other and trying to put each other out of business and all this. And, geez, the NFL's done, uh, done pretty well uh, since then. But uh, I guess... Yeah. Uh, What's I mean, as far as your view on let's take the heavyweights. I mean, um, do you think it's a mistake that that Wilder and Joshua seem to be uh, kind of unwilling to to make the biggest fight at heavyweight happen so far? I mean, and and when do you see that fight happening realistically? 
I said last year, I thought that we had arrived at, I was okay with waiting a little bit. You know, when it, when it, when you get something that becomes a fight, you know, a, a little weight doesn't hurt, right? I understand these guys are, you know, they're, they're risking their lives, you know, trying to generate that big purse is, is fine. You know, and I mean, Tommy Hearns and Ray Leonard was the fight right after the no Moss fight. And yet they still took some interim fights and, and let that get built up to, to get, let the public get their breath, you know, you sort of build up their anticipation for the next big event, right? It all still happened within a year. The problem now is you build that anticipation, it can build up for years. And then the, and so, you know, and then the, the likelihood that you're going to get more than one fight out of a rivalry goes down. So you don't have as many epic series um, among the very top fighters. Like you might get a Barrera Morales where the rivalry started at junior featherweight and was very hardcore centric. But at, at its at its at its genesis, but you know you only got one Mayweather Pacquiao. We're we're likely only going to see guys like Joshua Wilder once. I mean, Deontay Wilder is already thirty three years old. Right. We're not. You know. I mean, I know we've gotten used to seeing some heavyweights go till they're thirty nine or forty, but that's not common all time. And I don't think it's going to be common here either. I mean, I don't think all these guys are going to be you know racking up big wins still when they're forty. It just doesn't work that way. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, listen, I mean, my my thought on it is, uh, yeah, I mean, they're in their primes right now, and, and, and they really kind of need to hurry and get, get, the, get you know, a, a few big money fights in, because, yeah, you're right. I mean, Louis Bow never got made, because they got too cute with it, and then, you know, one guy would lose, yeah. and, and this and that, and, and then also, you got the, the Olympic class of 2016 coming up, and I mean, yeah. these guys are going to be coming of age, you know, late 2020, you know, mid 2021. So, you they need to hurry yeah, and, I mean, and fight I'm, each I'm other. Opti- yeah, no, I mean, I'm a pretty optimistic guy, but yeah, I mean, from just a, a viewing perspective, it sucks. Nobody wants to see these fights not happen. We'd like to see them happen more than once. That said, we did just see Wilder and Fury. I mean, it was less right. than six months ago. So, you know, it's not like we haven't seen any of these fights. So we saw we saw Fury and Joshua fight Klitschko. We have seen Wilder just last year fight Luis Ortiz and Tyson Fury. I think what should be reasonable in the next few years, right, this is in my head, is fans should expect to see one combination of those three guys per year until that, that rotation has worn itself out. I mean, at the very least, you should be able to see that. And I think that's what could be ultimately very disappointing about 2019 is I don't think we're likely to see any combination of Fury, Joshua, and Wilder. I hope I'm wrong. It just doesn't look like we're going that way. Um, And so that would be disappointing. But as far as, you know, I mean, do do I think it's terrible that they're not fighting right now? Yes. Yes. But, you know, at the very least, we should hope to see one combination of the three this year, and we're not going to likely. So... Yeah, that's that's a damn shame. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 it just seems to me, you know, it would make so much sense for the fall for Joshua Wilder to happen. But um, yeah, we'll see, we'll see. I mean, they they say it's a possibility, well, and, but then you also it, see that Wilder may have a lot, a lot of, of future fights worked out. <laughs> oh yeah, and it says a lot about the styles right now, uh, about what fans like to see. Because Tyson Fury, most people thought that he deserved the decision against Deontay Wilder. But right. the fight that I think the most number of people still want to see, at least in the United States, is Wilder and Joshua because of the knockout threat that both fighters pose to each other. Um, as entertaining as Fury is, he's not, you know, he's not somebody that you're, you're worried about is going to knock people senseless all the time. Joshua and Wilder has that sort of 
you know, almost a, a action movie dynamic to it that, that we're going to want to all see come together at some point. I just hope it happens while they're both still reasonably near their prime. Right, right, right. Yeah, I hope it doesn't turn into to Bo Lewis or, Lew, you know, just, it, it's got to happen. I, I hope one guy doesn't get upset before it does happen. That would just really take the air out of it. Um, but who yeah, you- but here, here's the other thing. Here's the other thing I think fans can keep in mind. So if you're getting frustrated that you're not seeing the fight that you want at heavyweight, fans should pay attention to where the clusters are in boxing right now. So boxing, the way it's set up with the, you know, the DAZN sort of lane and the PVC lane and the top-ranked ESPN lane, pay attention to who has big real estate and in what divisions. You saw a couple weeks ago ESPN started talking about what could be possible for them to do it like heavyweight. And they should, because they have a huge chunk of that division, and so they, that can be their quality control. So they can put on some main events that people aren't crazy about, but light heavyweight can be that source of quality for them. zone has these World Boxing Super Series tournaments. PBC has welterweight and junior middleweight. If fans are paying attention, they'll know where they can find the best possible action available in 2019, 2020, 2021, based on who has what and how much of certain divisions. And that's where boxing will be at its best in the coming years. And then at a place like heavyweight, you'll have a lot of finger crossing and teeth gnashing and, you know, three very distinct tracks until one of those guys loses or some belts start moving around. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I remember... uh seeing, you know, Steven Espinosa talking about it and kind of the goal of of the networks was to try and, you know, kind of get a a, a monopoly on, 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 you know, not a monopoly in a, in a legal sense, but just kind of corner the market on a weight division so that you have the stars in that division and also opponents for them. So, yeah, it's a, that, that's a really salient point about, you know, PBC definitely has, you know, great fighters at, at welterweight and, and junior middleweight and, you know, it'd be nice if they did like a, a real tourney, you know, instead of just kind of, you know, you get the fights when you get the fights. It'd be nice if you could follow along in a bracket. To me, that works better. But it doesn't seem like anyone's going to do that. But yeah, top rank and light heavyweight would be would be tremendous. Like, I guess, you know, that, that's a that's a question, too. If, if you know, in a perfect world, what division would you like to see a, like a, a world boxing super series tournament in? Like what's, what would be your number one division that you want to see it in? Oh, right now? Yeah. That's a tough call. Um, I, I mean, if, if you could have it anywhere, you probably want to see it at welterweight right now because that would put, that would put, uh, that would put ultimately give the opportunity for Crawford and Spencer or Crawford and Thurman or Spence and Thurman. It would tell us who the best welterweight in the world is. And I think that's an intriguing question right now because really you've got a big chunk of the division on one side, and then you've got Terrence Crawford over here. So it's, it's sort of a, a, a one against the world kind of. Uh, it, it would be a fascinating tournament. So you could do something with that. That'd be fun. Middleweight, I think you're getting it anyways. Um, I think you're going to get. You, I like brackets too. Don't get me wrong. I love the structure of the Super Six, even though it didn't always play out. I love the structure of the WBSS. However. If you can get a good enough round robin together, you don't need that structure, right? Like, nobody remembers that it doesn't matter that Ray Leonard and Tommy Hearns and Wilford Benitez and Marvin Hagler didn't fight in a bracket because outside of Benitez-Hagler, you saw all of those fights, and you saw some of them more than once. So you didn't need a tournament. You had a round robin. Um, and as, as long as you get those round robins going in, in places, it's good. But if I could put structure somewhere, uh, welterweight and junior middleweight are two classes. Um, junior bantamweight is still one I'd love to see. The depth is fantastic. Um, 
And uh, and I think we're seeing it at Bantamweight. I'd love to see it finish playing out. When Tete fell out of the World Boxing Super Series at Bantamweight, it created an opportunity for Inouye to still have, uh, or Denaire, whoever wins the tournament, to still have guys like Luis Neri and Zolani Tete out there. So there's still real fights out there. So I'd like to see sort of, you know, uh, 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 an epilogue to the tournament that includes the fighters that weren't involved in the first place. Sort of like we got at Cruiserweight when Usyk fought Bellu. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you're you someone who obviously tracks ratings and divisions. I mean, you know, which divisions would you say uh, are kind of overlooked right now that, that the people aren't really tracking or that you'd like to see, like, more big fights in? Um, I don't know if anything's really overlooked right now, to be honest. <laughs> in, in 2019, I'll be honest with you, in 2019, boxing is, because so much content is available, if you are interested in seeing the best fighters in the world at lighter weight classes, so, like, I grew up watching Michael Carbajal, and so I got interested in flyweight level in flyweight size fighters. Um, but you know, if, if that interests you, then you can find that out there right now. And so, it's not overlooked by people who are interested. But there are people out there who will never be super interested in watching 115 pound fighters. It just does not appeal to them on an aesthetic level. On some sort of a, there's almost like a mental block in it when they're watching it. So be it. Because then middleweight is out there and welterweight. And sometimes I think, you know, in between, junior middleweight, a lot of what's going on there can still get overlooked. Cruiserweight that still doesn't always get the respect it deserves in the United States, the big property elsewhere. Um, so, I mean, I, I think what's overlooked depends on where you're, where you're viewing the sport from. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's funny. This weekend, you know, we, we had, you know, a lot of fights, you know, on three networks, like a lot of fights. But then, you know, the, the one that, I mean, the, the fight that I was kind of the most interested in was the, uh, was the junior flyweight fight <laughs> that yeah, ended up being streamed. And so, so was I. Yeah, and I Kimura, mean, yeah. And so Kimura looked great on paper, especially if you saw Tanaka and Kimura last year. Absolutely. Which was just that was my fight of the year. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it was fantastic. I mean, look, one thing I'll say about the, the, the smaller weight classes right now, and you know, I, there are people who know. I, I, I follow. I, I try to treat them the same way you would treat any other weight class. So, um, but I, I can't hide my enthusiasm sometimes because of the action level that you get. It is easier in recent years for fighters in those weight classes to prove the sort of historical greatness that fans, that some older fans and some established fans feel like you can't really get anymore because you don't have the frequency of difficult matchmaking. Right. Right. In those weight classes, you're still seeing guys fight regularly against the top guys. I mean, if your complaint is that the best don't fight the best, then go look at what's been happening at flyweight and junior bantamweight and, and bantamweight, and not just this decade. I mean, 115 pounds was hot in the previous decade when, when you had fights like Mahara's and D'Artagnan and Donaire made his name, um, and then you had you know that cluster of guys at bantamweight. You don't always get the, the, the very best matchup, just like you don't in any other weight class. But you've seen a lot of clash in those weight divisions that sometimes have been missing other places. So, you know, it's out there for you. Right. Yeah, I guess, you know, I, I would love to see, uh, you know, if the World Boxing Super Series continues, I'd love to see them grab the junior flyweights just because I love watching Candace Alice. That kid can fight. And you've got Shiro and Kayaguchi and Acosta in that division, too. You know, that so many. kid can fight the Dickens, man. He really can crack. Absolutely. Just so many great fights here. Uh, I, I could see happening in that division. So, um, 
Well, I guess let's see if 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 you could have your druthers though. What 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 five fights um, would you would you love to see happen in in boxing right now? What are the five fights that you're hoping get get made, or maybe there are they've already been made? But what what are your like five fights that you would you would love to see made in the sport? All right. So if I was if, if I was king for a day, the <laughs> fights that I would probably most want to see are I, w- I would like to see uh, Noria Inouye fight Luis Neri. Absolutely. Yep. I'd love to see that fight. I would love to see Oscar Valdez versus Leo Santa Cruz at Featherweight. Ah, I think that fight. would be just sensational. Um, I would love to see, um, and, and I might be the only one, but based on recent form, I think Miguel Bergel and Vasyl Lomachenko would be a really interesting fight. Um, so I would be interested in that. Um, and, and I'm talking about fights that aren't made because, for Bryce Taylor is as good a fight as I think you yes, can make in the sport world. Absolutely love that fight. Absolutely love it. Love yeah. that fight. Um, what else? I, I think I would really like to see the um I mean Spence Crawford is up there and I would I would be fascinated in seeing if we go that direction, a Canelo Alvarez versus Callum Smith fight. I think that would be one hell of a scrap. That's an interesting one. That's an interesting one, yeah. and it, it seems very possible too. It seems like it's, it's mm-hmm. something that's been uh, been talked about. Um, yeah. You know, you know, one. I mean, obviously, I want to see Joshua Wilder. Just, I think for the sport, I think that one needs to happen. But I'm just as intrigued if that doesn't get made, and and Usyk is 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 you know uh, proves that the heavyweight's not too big for him. That is one hell of an interesting fight, Joshua Usyk. You know, I mean, yeah. I don't know that Joshua wins that fight. <laughs> You know, I'll tell you which one I would be even more interested. I actually have, and I've tweeted this before. I would love to see Usyk fight Deontay Wilder. I think that clash of styles would be absolutely fascinating. And I'll tell you one more. I'm cheating now. I'm going over five. But <laughs> at middleweight, at middleweight, if if Canelo finishes pulling all the belts together at middleweight, which he might, or at least three out of four, uh, and holding those for a little while, eventually Jamal Charlo is going to be his mandatory. Right. And if he takes that mandatory, a Jamal Charlo Canelo Alvarez fight is not only a great fight in the ring, but it's a great fight behind the scenes because of how much can, because it, it's a fight for the control of the middleweight division uh, and and which faction sort of gets to take the lead at middleweight. Um, that sort of stuff, you know, for the fans out there that like to you know get into the business side of things and sort of the the fascinating chess that can go on behind the scenes. I think that fight would be fascinating on so many different levels. Um, but in particular, because I think it'd be a great fight in the ring. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Charlo's kind of the guy who's, you know, playing Frisbee by himself over in the PBC right now because all the middleweights are on the zone. But, uh, yeah, eventually Canelo's got to fight him. You know, he is the mandatory, and it's mm-hmm. just they got to step on the WBC because the WBC is notorious for, for not enforcing those mandatories in a timely fashion. So, um <laughs> So they definitely got to step on them. But yeah, I mean, I guess yeah, I, I don't know that this fight will ever get made. But to me, I mean, I, I'm looking at, uh, you know, Devin Haney and Tiafima Lopez kind of on a on a collision course as well. But I don't know how long Lopez can can stay at 35. But oh, man, that would be a great fight if it happened. Haney, Haney's not good. I, I, I doubt Haney will be at 135 long. That fight, I think people who are already thinking about that as a potential future location, uh, future destination for the sport can, can go ahead and keep thinking about it because I mean, I I, t- I, t- I was there at the, at the MGM on Saturday. I talked to Devin after the fight briefly 
Um, and I asked him about making 135, and he noted it is tough, and uh, his body's growing. He's a 20 year old kid making 135, and there isn't much room for uh, body fat there. Right. So I would imagine he and Lopez will both be heading up the scale sooner than later. No doubt. Well, that's a great fight at 140 too. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. Either either way, well, man, it, I'll take fight, it. You know, uh, some fights really do need a little marinade. That one's a uh, that yes, one is one yes. of those that, that you can see sort of you can see it percolating right now, and and you know you let that you you, you let that steak cook long enough, you're gonna get it. You, you're gonna get a good one. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Tfimo seems like you. Well, they both seem like they're in quite a bit of hurry. So yeah, well, it's gonna be interesting yeah. to see how the next year plays out with those guys. So I guess last question. Well, one thing about it, it, it only. Oh, and, and think about it too. It only feels like Devin Haney is fast tracking, right? Because he's twenty. But there was a time in the sport not that long ago where a twenty-year-old kid. It wasn't a fast track. If you were ready to fight for a world title at 20 or 21, going for one, I mean, usually you got a little farther into your 20s, but, you know, 20 years old wasn't too young to be a contender in another era, and it's still not. It's just that, it's just that the way brand building happens in boxing kind of can slow the process down a little bit. But when you've got the goods, like a Floyd Mayweather, you know, you run them when they're ready to run. Right, right, right. Absolutely. Yeah, Haney, Haney looks like he's just about there for sure, for sure. So, so uh, just in in the month of June, I don't know if you've looked over the 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 fight schedule at all, but I mean, any, any big fights here, or even smaller fights that that you're looking forward to to seeing in uh, in the month of June? I think right now I'm just most interested in seeing, you know, what kind of reception Anthony Joshua gets at at Madison Square Garden. Um, you know, as big a star as he is in the UK, that star has not crossed the sea yet. Um, and it, you know, he, he can, he can stay home and be a multimillionaire for a long time, but if he wants, you know, part of being heavyweight champion of the world is conquering the globe. And that's a, that's a peculiar position and, and we'll see if he can start to develop it. I don't see why he couldn't. Um, but I mean, it's, it's, a it's not easy all the time to, to, to build outside of your home market, but I think he, he travels well. And I think that's going to help really a lot. Um, I think when you look at what guys like Ricky Hatton and Joe Calzag have done in the last 10, 15 years in terms of bringing fans across the, across the pond and helping to provide a, a more to an event atmosphere, you know, this is the beginning of the next phase of one of the biggest ticket draws we've seen in boxing in a long time, and I want to see how that evolves. Absolutely, and, and those, you know, Calzaghe and, and Hatton, they were selling out, you know, you know, fairly big venues, but they weren't selling out Wembley. So, and I, I've heard it's close to a sellout at the Garden, but not quite. So, I think they're maybe yeah. a, a thousand or so short of, of a sellout. But I, you know, I think it's going to be. But it's a start. Remember when Hat- when Hatton came over to Vegas to fight Castillo, it wasn't what it was for Mayweather, but it got the ball rolling. So, right. you know, can you can, can it can it get that ball rolling? Because it's clear at this point. We're not going to get Wilder Joshua until it is fever pitch and the biggest possible event it can, it can be. And part of building that event is making Joshua more attractive as a pay per view as a as a as a pay per view draw in the United States. Because let's be honest, right now that is not as big a pay per view fight as it could be. And so you know it, it just isn't because Joshua doesn't have the sort of name recognition in the U.S. yet that he will after you know after a few more fights as he starts to travel. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I'm going to ask you about a, f- a couple of fights. One on that on that undercard that I think is is really interesting. There's a couple of fights on that undercard. The the Joshua Ruiz undercard that I thought were interesting. But Josh Kelly stepping up to take on Ray Robinson. What do you think about that fight? I like it. Um, I, I mean, Robinson's the kind of guy who can who can give anybody a, a good test. Um, I mean, his last fight out, he, he gave a he gave a good test. So. 
Um, you know, those, those are the kind of fights that you have to develop with. And it's also, it's, it's good quality control for an undercard, right? Like you want to have fights where, you know, you, you can develop a new name, um, but also get them real rounds so that, so that you're finding out more about them as you move along and, and putting them in situations where they could potentially lose. And Robinson's the kind of fighter who can sneak up on somebody. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a, a tremendous test for Kelly. I don't even think Kelly has 10 fights at this point in time. So, you know. Robinson yeah. obviously had the draw with Mean Machine uh, Kavalowskis at his last fight, so that was it's definitely a huge test. Definitely a huge test. Uh, you know, I was just looking at June, and you know, and I'm thinking um, a lot of the fights I like are on undercards. I like the the on the, the Triple G uh, rolls undercard. I like Charles Conwell against uh, Skender Halili, who was in that you know fight of the year type thing a, a few years ago. That's a good test for Conwell. Um, on the Fury Schwartz undercard, I like the Sullivan Barrera versus uh, Jesse Hart fight. I think that's that's a tremendous fight. Um, you know, Hart and Barrera could really be kind of a show stealer kind of fight. Right, right. Those are two brawlers that 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 should you know who who, who don't mind leaving their chin out there. <laughs> so that'll be good. But uh, yeah, I mean, listen, we got the cruiserweight semis coming up in the in the World Boxing Super Series. Who do you see winning? Uh, uh, Breedis and uh, Glowoski. I like Breedis to win there. Um, I think Milwaukee, you know, I, I, I like watching Milwaukee. I just think, um, I think Breedis is a little more complete of a fighter. And I wasn't completely sold on him until I saw the Usyk fight. Right. Um, and then you kind of saw, you know, there, there's a, there's a lot, there's a lot there. Um, I mean, he gave Usyk a real fight. Um, one of the tougher ones Usyk has had, I think Milwaukee is a, a little too one dimensional, but he's physically tough. Um, and he brings the fight all night. Um, I mean, he, you know, if nothing else, Milwaukee can always look back and say he was in one of the greatest cruiserweight title fights of all time, right? Like, like whatever the fights are that are battling for second place after Holyfield Kawi, his fight with Mike Marco Huck was that. So, you know, it was, it was a hell of a scrap. Um, so, I, but I like Briedis in that fight. Yeah, I mean, uh, he actually—I was surprised how much he struggled in in the quarterfinals, uh, Briedis. I mean, I, I actually didn't even think he won that fight, but uh, but we'll we'll see if he returns to form against uh, Glowacki. But who do you have in Dortikos versus uh, Tabidi? Um, I don't know. I you know, Tabidi looked good, and you know, he could be a dark horse to win the whole tournament. Um, but I mean, Dortikos is is a veteran. I just I think Tabidi could sneak up on him there. Dortikos can be also you know a little bit. Uh, a little bit predictable, um, you know, in, in terms of his punch output. He's a one-two guy. I mean, it's super fundamentals, um, but Tabidi's younger. Uh, he hasn't, I mean, Dortikos has been in some real wars the last few years, um, and Tabidi feels like one of those real smart gambles uh, that you may put in the kid in the tournament, giving him a chance to flourish on the backside. I like Tabidi in that fight. No doubt, no doubt, no doubt. Um, just a few and then more. Pacquiao Thur- and then Pacquiao Thurman is coming before the summer's over, so, you know, that's... Right. Uh, <laughs> well, a couple more points in June I wanted to ask you about. Uh, Aston uh, Polikti and, and, and Kazuto Ioka for the for the um, Jacob Jr. I like Kazuto Ioka big in that fight. Um, I, I, I was surprised that Ioka lost to Nietes. I thought he might sneak up. Uh, I thought he might get past Nietes. Um, big credit to Donnie Nietes, who, you know, has been around for a long time lot of years and, and never really had sort of a, a win of the magnitude of Ioka, so good for him. Um, I was, I, I've seen Felipe a couple times, I saw him against Nietzsche. Um He's a good, solid fighter. Nothing that really jumps off the screen to impress you too much. Um, I think Kazuto Ioka is, is, a, is a little bit more, uh, a little bit more well-rounded, a little more talented, um, and should be able to win that fight. 
So a couple, couple rematches going on later in the month. You got Andrew Cancio and uh, Alberto Machado. Who do you think is going to win the, the rematch? I think Cancio probably wins again. Um, unless, uh, forgive me, I can't remember. What division are they fighting in? Are they moving Ju- up or is it a rematch for the title? It's a rematch for the title, the junior lightweight title. Yeah, I don't. I don't think Machado. I think Machado shouldn't be trying to make 130 pounds anymore. At least based on his frame and where he was in the last fight. Um, I mean, he could certainly turn it around, but I, I would. I would imagine Cancio could win that again. He's he's just he's he's more uh, he's more designed to be at that weight class. Right, right. How about the, another rematch here? Tony Harrison and uh, Jermel Charlo. Who you see uh, winning that rematch? I thought Jermel won the first fight, but I think it was close. Um, I thought it was competitive. Here's what we don't know. So in a vacuum, I would say I expect Jermel Charlo to win. But Tony Harrison is a talented guy, and it's the kind of fight where he could surprise us as one of those guys who gets better with a belt around his waist. We've seen that before, where guys get a little boost of confidence, get a little more comfortable in the ring, um, and then you find it's harder to beat them the second time around when they've already got a belt. So we'll see what happens. I mean, Harrison was giving Jared Hurd a hell of a fight before he got caught. Um, Harrison is not an, an easy out fighter. So I like Charlo, but you know, another upset there wouldn't surprise me. And, you know, maybe we end this year. We started this year talking about Jared Hurd versus Jermel Charlo. And we may finish the year talking about Julian Williams versus Tony versus Tony Harrison. <laughs> and that would be fascinating. Right, right. That, that's boxing. It's, it's crazy. Um, well, I guess, uh, two more here, Richard Comey and, and Ray Beltran. Do you think, uh, Beltran's just a little too, uh, used up or do you think he could, uh, give some, Comey some problems? No, I think Comey's going to look spectacular in that fight. Beltran, I mean, Beltran is going to hang around. He's going to give it some rounds and be entertaining for the fans. But Ray Beltran is, uh, he's getting up there in age and that's a lot of wear and tear on that frame. And I think Comey is, is hot. Um, I think it'll be a good fight for him. He'll look good. Um, and it gets him closer to a potential four-belt unification fight with Lomachenko later in the year, which would be fantastic. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, you know, I, the thing about Comey, though, is he does leave that chin in the air, and, and Beltran's such a crafty veteran. I, I definitely think, I don't think that's going to be a blowout. I think it'll have some interesting moments in it, but, uh, but I, I agree with you. Youth will be served in that one. Um, we've got Demetrius Andre, and, and at the end of the month against the Selecki for the WBO middleweight title, uh, so Lecky's given, you know, I mean, he's, he's proven he's a top middleweight. How, how do you see that one going? I think Demetrius Andre probably wins that fight. Um, I mean, Andre's an interesting guy to watch in the ring. Um, you know, it, it, he, had some, he had some funny, like, off performances early in his career that I think colored the way he was perceived um, in terms of, you know, does he really want it? Does he have that fire? But when he's on in the ring, he's a very difficult fighter to beat. His, his schooling is and, and, and that amateur foundation and his length and his speed are difficult to deal with. Um, and I just don't think he's going to lose right now. I think Andre is, is, is focused on trying to get to the sort of big fight he hasn't yet to have had in his career. I mean, it's hard to believe he's been a pro a decade now. And yeah, I, I mean, the time is Andre. I mean, you know, if, if he can't, he can't afford to lose now. And I think he'll realize that. I don't think we're going to, uh, I, I think he's going to take an elite level talent to kind of knock him off right now. I, I think the talent is there, and and we might actually, you know, be ready to see him marry all that sort of potential and talent together. All right, all right. Well, hey, Cliff, I really appreciate you taking the time on a on a, on a holiday weekend, and it was such a pleasure, a real pleasure to talk to you. And hopefully, uh, you know, I'll see you at the fights one of these days. <laughs> 
Absolutely, yeah. I look forward to it, Kurt, and uh, best wishes to you and, and yours, and uh, hopefully we'll talk again in the future. All right, sounds good. Take care, my man. And that will do it for another edition of the Boxing Esquire podcast presented by The Ring and RingTV.com and distributed by the Leave It in the Ring Network. I'd like to thank Cliff Roll for taking the time out to speak with me. Really enjoyed that conversation. And if you like the podcast, please leave a comment or a rating on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Audioboom, SoundCloud, or wherever you access the Boxing Esquire podcast. I really appreciate it as it helps new listeners find the podcast. And also, do not forget to check out my companion piece to this podcast on ringtv.com that features quotes and background on my interview with Cliff. So until next time, so long, everybody. Did you get what you was looking for?